Amen. Thank you for that powerful reminder, the power in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, it's his name that we come to celebrate today. We are going to partake in the Lord's Supper today. And if you did not grab your communion cup, we invite everyone who's been born again into living hope through Jesus Christ by grace through faith in his death and resurrection to join us later at the table for communion. And when I say at the table, I mean in your seats, gathered together in the table in the throne room of heaven. Uh, so if you didn't get one, just raise your hand and some of our ushers will bring one to you if you need one. I think everybody, okay, Tina, we'll get you one. Thank you, Calvin. Uh, anybody else? Calvin, grab a couple maybe. Uh, we appreciate it. It's kind of new and these things taste terrible. Uh, they do. It's official. They are terrible. But we uh, are not here to uh, enjoy the flavor of this as much as what it represents. It's a powerful, powerful symbol of what Jesus has done for us. And when we partake of these elements, we partake in his sacrifice and his death and resurrection. And we proclaim his death until he comes again. So don't focus on how bad it tastes. <laughs> I'm excited for our text for today. Roman, we're back in Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 24 to 27. If you have your Bibles, please open Isaiah 24. After being uh, in Isaiah, you know, 18 to uh, 23 for the last few weeks, it's, we've been reading a lot about God's judgment on the nations. And today we have this beautiful picture of the promises of God and the end of all things and how God will finally overcome evil once and for all. It's a very encouraging, refreshing words of hope, words of restoration, words of renewal that are like water to a thirsty soul. So I hope that you will find it refreshing this morning. You know, I'm not sure what it is about apocalyptic movies, but they keep just cranking them out, right? Uh, every year it seems like we have some kind of apocalyptic movies, apocalyptic literature. There are books like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, these apocalyptic kind of end times Movies, uh, they, they keep coming out. You know what I'm talking about? Movies that are set in a world that is either uh, imminently about to end or has already ended in some way, post-apocalyptic uh, movies. Uh, these movies are, are, again, like I Am Legend. Remember I Am Legend where the, the coolest scene is where Will Smith drives a, a, a Mustang GT uh, at, you know, 100 miles an hour through the empty streets of New York City. And New York has turned into a jungle. There's animals running through the streets and rusted out cars everywhere. And he's got to fight off zombies. And Armageddon, remember this one? I think Morgan has this on VHS still uh, somewhere. But Armageddon where this huge asteroid's coming for Earth. And if they can't send a team up there to blow it up, then the world is doomed forever. Or, or there's other movies where something takes over the world, like AI. I think it was Steven Spielberg film, AI, or The Matrix. Remember the Matrix movies where artificial intelligence causes these machines to rise up and overtake humans? And, of course, an older uh, one is, and I'm sorry if I said older. Some of you uh, will be offended by that. But Planet of the Apes, of course, where the apes take over uh, the world, and you see the the Statue of Liberty at the end, and uh, spoiler alert, it's, it's Earth. <laughs> Sorry if I just ruined it for you. I think ap apocalyptic movies, apocalyptic literature is so compelling because it forces us to really take stock of what really matters. 
If everything is stripped away and laid bare, if everything is, is just empty and desolate on earth, when we're threatened with worldwide doom, what really matters? What is the foundation that we are standing upon? What are we betting our lives on, as Rick Warren says? We're all betting our lives on something, by the way. What is that for you? Apocalyptic movies bring that kind of urgency and simplicity that strips away everything else that it's hard to conjure up if you're not facing, you know, worldwide doom uh, in that moment. And the same thing is true for apocalyptic writings in the Bible. Did you know that the Bible contains several apocalyptic passages, such as when Jesus, our Lord, had entered into Jer Jerusalem and on the Tuesday before he was to be crucified, led his disciples up onto the Mount of Olives and gave what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, about what will happen in the end of all things, also known as the Apocalypse. You all know the story of Daniel and the lion's den, but you may not know that the second half of Daniel is about his apocalyptic visions of what will happen in the end times. And of course, the most famous apocalyptic writing in the Bible would be the book of Revelation. You're so smart, you Bible scholars out there. Revelation, which these writings pull back the curtain, uh, the veil that, that blocks our view into the future of what will happen, and they give us a glimpse, they give us a taste of what God is up to, ultimately up to, where all this is heading, where all this is going. It's like my friend and, and teacher, Fran Shaka, says, uh, this is America. We're all free to believe whatever we want to believe. That's fine. You believe your truth. I'll believe my truth. That's great. Until we die, then all that matters is what's true. Apocalyptic writings help us boil down to the essence of what do we really believe to be true? What are we building our lives upon? Isaiah 24 to 27 is considered by most scholars to be apocalyptic literature. It's similar to, you know, Revelation or Daniel in that way. And instead of looking at individual nations and pronouncing oracles on each of those nations, Isaiah now zooms out and gives us this global picture of what God intends for the whole creation. And what he sees are, is represented by two cities. Two different, very disparate cities. One is the city of humanity, and one is the city of God, the new Jerusalem. The city of humans, the city of God. Isn't it interesting in apocalyptic movies to really drive home the point of how different things are in the apocalypse? They always feature cities, right? Remember Independence Day when all the... Uh, I forget, that movie's so old now, it's amazing. I was, I was a kid when this came out. Remember, where do they go? Where do these big alien ships go? They go to cities. They go to Paris. You got the Arc de Triomphe just being blasted here, the Eiffel Tower. They go to New York and Moscow and London and LA and all these big cities because that's where humans are centered. That's where human ingenuity is gathered. Remember uh, WALL-E? That's one of my favorite apocalyptic movies. I think I liked it better than my kids did. Uh, WALL-E is, is among this old city 
that's just been completely corrupted by human waste and trash and garbage to the point where the city was no longer inhabitable and humans had to escape the planet. Little robots stuck in the massive city cleaning up after these wasteful humans. So many of these movies also feature the Statue of Liberty like you saw on the Planet of the Apes, right? Uh, the Day After Tomorrow, I think it was widely panned by critics, but uh, again, you see the, the uh, Statue of Liberty covered in ice and snow uh, up to her waist in snow and this apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic movie. And here's the thing about cities. I love cities. When, when I was a kid, we used to, to take spring break and we'd go to Chicago or Washington, D.C. or something and go to museums and, and go shopping and, and look at all the architecture. And, and cities are amazing, right? Cities represent uh, the, the, the highest form of human achievement, of, of human engineering and artistic expression, which also means that cities represent the height of human pride, you could say. Cities represent the height of human arrogance, you could say. Cities also show human self-sufficiency. You know, the Bible tells us about the very first city. Do you know who built the first city? It's, it's listed in Genesis 4. The first city on earth was built by Cain. Remember that guy? He killed his brother. And he was judged by the Lord, sentenced to be a fugitive and an outlaw. So he tried to create a structure for himself, a city that would keep him safe. He, he satisfied his need for belonging, for significance, by remaking the world in his own way, by taking control on his own terms, by constructing an alternative reality to the one that God had built originally in the garden in his attempt to flee from the curse that God had pronounced on him. Ray Ortland says, a city is not just a collection of buildings. It's a mechanism for living independently of God. It's a device for human self-salvation. It's a denial of human mortality we can live forever in the city. The city is, is man establishing his own enduring greatness. But even civilizations are mortal. There's only one city, as we're going to see throughout Scripture, only one city that remains forever. And it's not the city that's built by human hands. We're going to see that in these four chapters that, to, that, that we're going to read today that the city of human genius, the city of human achievement, is a metaphor for the whole world. The system of the human city is the system of the world. It's the way of our fallen world. Let's jump into Isaiah 24, verses 1 to 4. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the name of God, will empty the earth and will make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. That sounds apocalyptic, doesn't it? And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. 
There's a great leveling. Everyone will be on the same playing field. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. It will happen. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. There is no underground bunker on that day for the highest human authorities, for the world leaders, for the most wealthy and powerful people on that day. They will all be languishing. And, and, and the whole key passage in this text is, is in verse 10. The vision of the city of humanity is summarized in verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. What's fascinating in this verse is the word for wasted, good Jewish people would immediately recognize the same word. Tohu is the same word that's used in Genesis 1. We know Genesis 1, the first verses of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created, he barad in Hebrew, the heavens and the earth. And then what does it say? The earth was without form. Do you know what that word is in Hebrew? Tohu. It's the exact same word that's translated in the ESV as wasted for the city. The, the, the city is without form. It's like a lump of clay that has not been touched by the master's hand. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. That sounds apocalyptic, doesn't it? You see where the similarities are. Before the Lord came in and brought order and structure to the creation and gave it his beautiful master architect touch. The world was wasted. It was in chaos. Some translations say chaos. It was completely without structure and order. That's how the city of God will be on that day. Formless, the, the city of humans, sorry, will be on that day. Chaotic, like New York and I Am Legend, overgrown with weeds and, and wildlife running free all through the city, completely empty of human ambition. All the, the human genius that built up that amazing city will prove to have come up empty and leaving nothing but a wasteland. That's a theme that's throughout this whole section of Isaiah. We're going to see it in every chapter. Look at chapter 24, verse 12. You see, desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Next chapter, chapter 25. Keep going. There you go. Verse 2 says, you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. 26, verse 5 says, he's humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low. Lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. And finally, in chapter 27, verse 10, for the fortified city is alone, it's solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. We see that theme of the, the city of human ingenuity that the Lord humbles and brings to naught. All the, the vain parties, chapter 24 talks about the, 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 the vain, empty partying, the escapism that our culture is so prone to. 
Aaron and Andy and I were at a conference in First Baptist Nashville's new building, which overlooks Broadway and downtown. And we went up to their rooftop chapel that looks right down the strip of bars down Broadway. And Andy said, this would be a great place for a sermon on debauchery, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's true. It's it, it, overlooking all those bars and standing at the church there. And, and humans have this need to escape the reality of this world. And so we, we conjure up the best we can think of. We conjure up uh, the, the parties that we think are the best way to live and the most fun. But of course, as we see in Scripture, sin invades our culture. Sin invades our way of life in this world. Sin steers away our culture and our lives away from God and towards destruction. We believe as Christians that God's ways revealed in Scripture and ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ are best. That God's ways, his prescriptions, his commandments lead to flourishing. That they lead to thriving in the best way possible. Not in a legalistic, you know, be good and you won't get zapped. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's prescriptions for creation and how we can live into a better story than the one that our culture tells. The city of humanity is where we live when we refuse that divine order for our lives, when we reject God's ways and we try to jerry-rig our own set of values by which we try to live, why we try to set our own definitions, try to set our own boundaries. But Isaiah sees through all that. He has the prophetic vision here to see what so many in our world, and of course us too, refuse to see so often, the regressive power of sin. That sin reverts back to uh, something away from the good things that God is doing progressively. That sin just tries to ruin us. Our enemy comes what? John 10, 10, to steal, to kill and destroy. He's trying to destroy us mentally, physically, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. But we tend to think we know better, right? We got this figured out. I'm not going to be destroyed. I can handle him. Look at chapter 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they've transgressed the laws. They violated the statutes. They've broken the everlasting covenant. We say, yeah, God, all these rules, we're not having it. They're not real fun. So we think we can do better our way. So we're just going to kind of do our own thing. But Micah 6.8, remember that? God has shown us what is good. He has shown us what is tov in Hebrew. What is good. He's not left us to figure it out for ourselves. We, his people, have his revelation, again, through his word, through his son, whom he sent to earth on our behalf, we have his commandments. We have his covenant promises. And yes, the, the city of hu humanity can be fun, right? Trey Heyman, our former youth guy, used to say, if you are sinning and not enjoying it, you're doing it wrong, <laughs> right? It's true. Sin can, can be temporarily, fleetingly fun. But it's all chasing after the wind, ultimately, Sin and, and the, the culture of this world is enticing. We see, you know, the people in their nice clothes and eating and enjoying nice things. 
we see that they're having a nice time going to nice places, but all of it's vain. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 says that there are fleeting pleasures of sin. But look at Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist cries out to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures for a little bit, pleasures that last for a little while. No, pleasures forevermore. There is one city that stands forever. Pleasures forevermore. Which pleasures are you pursuing? Your answer to that question will determine which city you are dwelling in, which city you choose to live in. Your answer will show if you're in the city of humanity or the city of God. One of my favorite songs from my high school days, you know, the height of alternative music in the late 90s, uh, was Radiohead. I see Jared nodding his head back there. Uh, for open mic night at Franklin High School, when I was 17, I played Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead. It's a, you know, one of those angsty kind of uh, alternative songs that, that says that, you know, it's exhausting to live a fake life, basically. And I'm so real, because I'm, you know, alternative music, and I'm so cool. Uh, and, and the truth is, though, it is exhausting to live a plastic life to live a fake life. And what Isaiah is showing us here is that the culture of the world is plastic. It doesn't last because it's not real. It's, it's fake, plastic culture. We don't want to live in that. We want to live in real culture that God creates in the best way possible. The city of humanity is ultimately temporary. It's not going to last. And yet we consciously and subconsciously pledge our allegiance to it constantly. We, we dip a toe in, we jump in sometimes into the culture of the city of humanity. I'm not talking about fighting culture wars. I have no interest in that. I'm talking about living into a better story, into a better way, a way of real flourishing and thriving. And the good news is that the gates of the city of God are not like the gates of the plastic city. Verse 10 in chapter 24 told us that the, the gates of the city of, of humanity are shut up. They go from door to door. No one answers. The houses are all shut up. But the gates of the city of God are open wide through Jesus Christ who died and rose again. He flings open the gates to us, to all humans. Because Jesus died and rose again, all plastic hypocrites like myself are welcome into the city of God. Praise God. So in chapter 24, verses 1 to 20, that was the intro. Sorry, I know we've got to get to communion. We, we see this example of the two cities and this city of the humans that's in the apocalypse. In the next four sections, he points to God himself. Isaiah is going to show us uh, how we're going to see God in that day. That's a phrase that's used over and over again. We're going to see four things about God that are ultimately true now, but one day we will know in full. One day we will, our faith will be made sight. So first, in, in chapter 24, verse 21 to 23, in that day we're going to see that the Lord alone is glorified. In chapter 24, verses 21 to 23. Look at verse 23. It says, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion 
and in Jerusalem, the new city, and his glory will be before his elders. We know in Exodus that God's glory showed up to the elders of the Israelite people, but on this day, all who worship him in fullness, in spirit and in truth, will behold his glory in such a way that it will shame the sun itself and the moon. You know, it's easy in this life to get distracted. It's easy to turn uh, our eyes away from Jesus and onto the things of the earth, which will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's easy to give our minds attention and our hearts affection to temporary plastic things that do not last and have no real value. It's easy for our hearts to constantly crank out new idols for us to give our worship to, because as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories, just cranking out one after the other. But Isaiah tells us here that a day is coming when all the stars and the hosts of the sky are gonna hang their heads in shame in the blazing glory of the triune God. That's where the story is headed. How could it not be? He is that which is ultimately glorious. How could it not end in glory? It's gonna culminate in the open display of God's glory in the presence of his wholehearted worshipers. So learning to satisfy our hearts now with the most satisfying of things, the glory of God himself, his perfect beauty and holiness is simply preparation for that day when all of us will behold his glory in full. There we're going to experience the pleasures forevermore that the psalmist talked about. In the next section, chapter 25, all of chapter 25, Isaiah tells us that we're going to see God as an extravagant host in that day. It's very appropriate we're going to the table of the Lord today in communion because this passage is about God setting a table before us. How many of you like to eat? I enjoy eating. I love food. Nashville is quickly becoming more and more of a food town. I always ask Jamie, where should we go eat? She always knows the coolest places to eat, and she knows the best places. I need to go to Shotgun Willie's too. Miles, you told me, we gotta go to Shotgun Willie's in East Nashville for the best. It's, it's Texan-approved Texas brisket. I haven't been there yet, gotta go. What we're gonna see here is that God as a host spreads a table before us unlike anything you've ever had before. If you enjoy eating, oh, wait till that day. He's gonna throw us the best party that we could ever have imagined, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. When we come to the Lord on that day, he's gonna say, get the best robe, put the best ring on, kill the fattened calf. We're gonna throw a blowout like you've never seen before. Look at verse six in chapter 25. On this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, will make for all peoples, is Christianity exclusive or inclusive? All peoples, every nation, tribe, and tongue. All peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. You ever had marrow before? Morgan and I went to some fancy restaurant on vacation and uh, it was a package that was included with our dinner that night and they had a special and it was uh, marrow. And I was like, I've never had that. And they like, it's delicious, you should try it. 
And they, they brought out this, you know, huge bone like this, just cut in half. It was roasted in a spoon and it's delicious. They compare it to foie gras, which I've never had, but uh, I have had marrow. It's, it's rich and it's decadent and it's, it just melts in your mouth. That sounds gross maybe, but don't knock it till you try it. <laughs> Uh, this is premium stuff that our host is providing. And it's not just for Baptists. It's not just for Americans, right? It's for all peoples. We need to remember that our God is not the God of the South. He's not the God of Caucasian people. He's the God of the world, of all nations, tribes, and tongues. And the location is important too. This party is not in the city of humanity. It's not on Broadway. This epic bash is going to be on the mountain of the Lord, where the culture is not driven by desperate people trying to escape from reality. The mountain of the Lord is where real salvation is found and where a party unlike any other will be. You know, we're going through Tim Keller's book on Friday morning, uh, The Prodigal God. Men, I invite you to join us 6.30 a.m. on Zoom uh, I think we just gave out our last book today, but you can order it on Amazon. It's, it's like $7, The Prodigal God. In the parable of the prodigal son, we see that there are two brothers who are lost. The first one has been squandering away his wealth and his family's wealth and wild living. But the other brother has been squandering away his father's love by following all the rules. He didn't want a relationship with his dad. He wanted the same thing the younger brother did. He wanted the dad's stuff. He wanted to be good so he could get the dad's stuff. And when he, the dad throws a big party for the whole community, the older brother goes and pouts. And the, the dad has to leave his own party, which is shameful, and go out and find the older brother and say, we're partying here, come on, man. And he says, no, you never even gave me a goat. Now you're throwing this huge party for him? I'm not coming. <laughs> we don't know ex exactly how it ended. Jesus leaves it hanging. But the question remains for us, do you even want to go to this party? Does this sound lame to you? Do you long to be with the Lord? Do you long to be near him, to know him, to see him fully, to become like him, to delight in his presence? Or are you content with the fake plastic food of the parties in the city of humanity? We can't begin to fathom how good the party in the kingdom of God is going to be in the city of God. Jesus knew on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, the night that he was betrayed, Matthew 26, verse 29, he tells his disciples, look, I, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Don't you hear the longing in his voice? Guys, it's going to be awesome. It's gonna be so great. I can't wait. Guys, we're gonna be there. We're gonna be there. Do you long for that day? Or are you content with the city of humanity? It's an important distinction to make. On that day, Jesus is gonna lift all the gloom, all the despair off of this life and this world. And look at verses seven to nine, how great these promises are in chapter 25. He's going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, 
for the Lord has spoken. That means this will happen. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Our faith is now sight that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day is coming. Do you long for it now? Have you RSVP'd for the party? The Lord promises to save you a seat. But no matter how wild or no matter how buttoned up your life has been, you have a place at the table. I promise you. Third, chapter 26 tells us that in that day, we're going to see the Lord as our merciful Savior. Isaiah tells us that humans in our sinful flesh tend to resist the grace of God offered to us in our lives. Look at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 26. If favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Then here's the key verse, verse 12. Oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. Man, that goes against the grain of the American dream, doesn't it? Work hard and you can achieve everything for yourself. I mean, am I saying that's wrong? Not exactly. Do I tell my kids to work hard? Yes. Do I want them to work hard and achieve a lot? Yes. But it, 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 the problem with this is that we tend to see that we should save ourselves through our hard work. That God will love us if we work hard for it. But salvation comes through what God has done for us. We know that intellectually, but it's really hard to learn it in our hearts. Ray Ortland says, the Christian life is not what we give to God, but what God gives to us. And what God gives to us is peace, wholeness, humanness at its authentic best forever. And that's always been God's plan. He has ordained it from the beginning. The key to receiving that salvation that God offers for us is to come empty, to not bring anything to the table that goes towards our salvation because we can't, and that's good news. If it was up to us, we'd never make it. We would be drowning in our sins and our iniquity. But the gospel says that God has indeed done for us all that we could not have done on our own in order to save us and make us right with him now and forever. The only prerequisite for being saved then is to come empty. Spiritual bankruptcy is the key. Eddie, in recovery, I know y'all talk about this, Ron, that you have to come empty and not try to save yourself. That's why one of the steps is to acknowledge that you are powerless over sin and that you need a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. You know, when we come to the table empty, that's when we're filled. Matthew 5, verse 3, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time. How does Jesus begin it? What's the first line, the very first line of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Sad people? Well, not really. 
It means people who are empty spiritually. People who in and of themselves have nothing to offer spiritually. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first and most important line in the Sermon on the Mount. When we come to him empty, God fills us with all that we need. He preserves us in the mentality of faith as well. Look at Isaiah 26, uh, verse 3, one of my favorite verses. We discussed this in a staff meeting recently. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How do you live in the city of God now? By faith. And, and if you do that, God will keep you in perfect peace when you keep your mind stayed on him. What a beautiful promise. We can rest secure in the knowledge that no matter what happens in this world, our salvation is secure through Jesus, our merciful Savior. Fourth, on that day, we're going to see that the Lord is our only worship. All idols will be tossed aside and burned. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, there's that phrase again, in that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What, what a cool picture. You know, Leviathan is this ancient monster and it represents all of evil and the evil system in our world. And one day God with his hard and great and strong sword will chop Leviathan into pieces. What a cool image of God the warrior who finally and decisively will defeat sin and evil once and for all. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus won the decisive battle by dying on the cross and by rising again to new life. Through his resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, talking about the evil systems, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, in him. Open shame. It says that Jesus, when he sat down at God's right hand, he, he put his feet on his enemies like a footstool. <laughs> Just a little image of how God's put evil to shame. That means that Satan has no more power over us. Yes, bad things will happen to even Christians. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus told us. But we're not in danger from the evil that is in those bad things. We have nothing to fear from Satan. As Martin Luther said it, lo, his doom is sure. And in that day, when Christ returns, death itself will die. Satan will die too, and all glory will go to Jesus Look at chapter 27, verse 13. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is where we're headed. Do you choose to live in the city of God now by grace through faith in him? Or do you choose for the plastic, temporary, fleeting pleasures of the city of humanity. Only one will last forever. Only one will lead to flourishing and thriving in this life and the next. The other one will lead to regressive destruction. What choice will you make today? Some of us need to find a new city. All these Californians that are moving to Nashville, right? They need a new city and they're coming to Nashville. 
Some of us need to make that choice today. Is it time for you to go? I don't mean move from Nashville. I mean leave the city of humanity. Leave it behind. Kiss it goodbye. Come empty to the table that God sets for us of rich feast. In his presence, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are indeed our merciful Savior, our gracious host, and that one day you will be our only worship. Until then, God, we're so tempted by all the, the idols, by all the false gods in this world. Lord, forgive us for chasing after things that are plastic that ultimately will not last. They are not ultimate things. God, we pray that you would fix our hearts on you alone so that we can live more fully into the city of the new Jerusalem as we rehearse the banquet that one day will be for real and physical glory. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the reality that Isaiah shows us, that in the end, you will stand upon the earth and we will know that our Redeemer lives. Our faith will be made sight and you will satisfy us with the richest of foods. For at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And yet we go after the fleeting pleasures of this world so often. God, C.S. Lewis reminds us that we resemble children in the slums making mud pies because we have no idea how great a vacation at the beach could actually be. Help us not to settle for the fleeting pleasures, but to set our hearts on those that are so much greater. In giving ourselves away, we find ourselves living into your good purposes, following your commands, your precepts, holding fast to your covenant. God, we find that we flourish and that we thrive in a way that our culture could never enable us to. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the vision that you gave to Isaiah. We pray that we would take it to heart today as we approach your table. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.